Thank you for joining us. This is How Have You Not Seen, a movie podcast where every week we fill in the gaps in each other's cinematic knowledge by asking important questions like, why have you never watched Waitress? Or, you seriously haven't seen Trainwreck? Or, how have you not seen Fallen Angels? Hello again, and thank you for joining us for How Have You Not Seen? I'm your co-host, Caroline Thompson. I'm the other co-host, Carson Metz. And this is a movie podcast where each week we typically pick one of our favorite movies the other hasn't seen. Usually, we're still going to talk about it, but usually we talk about it. Then we typically go and watch the film, which we will also do this week. Well, usually it's just the two of us, and then usually it's just the two of us and we talk about it some more, but... But and it's always a really good time. It's always a really good time. But this week, we uh, we have a very special guest uh, joining us to the show. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, J.J. Bursch joining us today, um, who has not seen the Wong Kar Wai film, Fallen Angels. J.J., how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Uh, very good. Um, always, I, I say this all the time, but this is always my favorite way to start a, start a Saturday. Just a cup of coffee talking about movies with some cool people. So um, before we hop into everything, JJ, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Do you want to introduce yourself, uh, kind of what it is that you do, kind of what your, uh, how you found yourself on the podcast? Of course. Yeah. So what do, what do I do? Um Basically, uh, I work for the podcast Blink Check with Griffin and David, a podcast where we cover filmographies of directors who have massive success sometime early on in their careers and are given a blank series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want, yada, yada, yada. Um, I started researching for the show about two years ago. I think it was April of 2021. So I'm almost at the two-year mark. At that point, I was finishing up uh, a PhD program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, a PhD in film. Um, and I was pretty directionless because we were in the middle of a pandemic. Academia was um, not treating people well before the pandemic in terms of landing a job in that area. And I just kind of reached out to um, David Sims, one of the hosts of that show, and said, hey, maybe you could use me and I could definitely use you. And it's been working out since then. So my main job is I do research for the show. I fill them in on all the backgrounds of the production and stuff, the kind of stuff I might even model when I come back to record the second part of this podcast. Absolutely. Well, JJ, it's super awesome to have you on the show. Um, The... As as anybody who is in the film podcast sphere, I think the three of us um, are all fans of Blank Check and and everything you guys do over there. So uh, super, super wonderful to have you on the show. And uh, yeah, thank you for joining. Uh, JJ put out a, uh, a call on Twitter like a couple months ago that was just like, I think it's about time for some of y'all to have me on your podcast. And I was just like, we, we will be planning our, <laughs> our 2023 calendar next month. If you, you want a slot, hop on in. So Super, super exciting to have you on the pod. Um, and without further ado, JJ, how have you not seen Fallen Angels? 
Ooh, I was actually just going over this thinking about why haven't I seen it and if you know anything about this movie having not seen it I think you know that it was originally semi-planned to be um the third kind of story in Wong Kar Wai's like masterpiece one of my 10 favorite movies of all time Chungking Express um he ended up thinking that the movie was complete without it and that this more demented story didn't really fit in with like two of the most beautiful, sad love stories ever written. Um, so uh, I think like what I've done, I was trying to place myself, when have I tried to watch this movie? And I think I've always tried to do it in conversation with Chungking Express. So I will watch that. And then much like Wong Kar Wai, I will be like, okay, yeah, I got it. That, that was a full experience. Maybe I'm not ready for this demented kind of chapter. So I'm using you your podcast to finally force me to watch a beloved film from one of my favorite filmmakers. But yeah, usually I, I butt up against like the same thing he did. I had my experience. I I think that's, I think that's a really good way to look at it because Carson and I were kind of texting yeah. uh, the other day, like as we were just kind of like gearing up and we were kind of debating the, the, the kind of tension between those two films. And uh, I think, I think that's a really, understandable reason to not have pulled the trigger on watching this one yet yeah I'm, I'm sure we'll get into it in the second half but caroline is very much a chung king gal and i'm very much a fallen angels boy so <laughs> we, and we have say, tag tag yourself chung king gf <laughs> fallen angels bf yes and that, that is not to say that uh i i don't also really uh appreciate and like this film um but yeah we were kind of we were kind of debating that uh because we were we're like, okay, JJ is a researcher. How much, like, we should we should probably do a little bit more homework because us at our best, that's kind of the, the <laughs> joy of doing this podcast is it's a first watch podcast. So it's yeah. it's very much about those kind of like initial knee-jerk reactions to a film. So we're just like, it's like, even if we do our best, he will probably be more researched than we are when we finally get oh, to the show. Yeah. But like, let's do a little bit of homework. Let's like flesh out a little bit of this. We have an oh, actual God. smart person on this week. Oh God. Uh, but JJ, you got into it a little bit there. Um, but what do you know? Like you're going into this film, you clearly have some experience with Wong Kar Wai's filmography. Mm -hmm. um, what do you know about, about Fallen Angels going into this? That's, that's a great question. I mean, I know, so I love Wong Kar Wai. He's one of my favorite directors. I've seen Chungking Express probably more than any other film that's not directed by Steven Spielberg um, or Steven Soderbergh, probably. Those are my two rewatch Amazing. guys. I right, was going to say, I've seen, I've seen you Soderbergh posting quite a bit recently. Yeah, and actually uh, the other film I proposed to you was Steven Soderbergh Solaris, which I have seen yes. like 500 million times. Um, but... So I love Wong Kar Wai. I've seen, I believe it might just be Ashes of Time and uh, Fallen Angels that I have left, which again, I mean, one of them is understandable. It's much harder to watch over here. It's not a particularly well-received film. Mm -hmm. um, leads in many ways to these films, um, but it's it's become that big kind of hole in my filmography. So what do I know? I know I love Wong Kar Wai. I know the color green plays a big part in this one. I know there's some pretty cool shots. <laughs> um, I believe there's a motorcycle. Uh-huh, yes, um, that is, yeah. yes. Very true. That's what I know. And I also know, of course, like, I mean, something we'll probably discuss, you two having 
seen the film in the past. Mm -hmm. I will be watching it on I want World of Wong Kar Wai Blu-ray, which I gather is a very different looking film than the film looked when it was originally released in the 90s. Yes, yes. And um, I have watched this one uh, via the Criterion channel, which I assume is the same is the same version that is on um, that is on that Blu-ray. Um, but yeah, so wonderful. That's I mean, that's that's a lot more knowledge than we frequently come prepared with, although sometimes not. We over on Patreon, Corey, uh, our producer, had never seen 1977's Star Wars. So uh, we pretty cool he had flick. quite a bit of quite a bit of reference uh, for that one going in. But yeah, but it sounds like, you know, a lot about um, about this film. Is there anything else, you know, or anything else you just kind of want to touch on before we move into the next little segment of the show? I don't think so. I was I was just thinking when you said I knew a lot about it, like, why do I know that? And I do feel like many of Wong Kar Wai's films, it has become kind of like you can't scroll on Twitter without seeing a still from his movie, one of his movies almost every day. And Fallen Angels is one of the ones where, again, every time I see it, I'm like, it looks so cool. It's not Chungay Express. It looks so cool. Why have I not watched this one? So yeah. really happy to fill in. I can now understand tweets, which is the most important thing. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, if that is the case, before we go and we break and watch the film, we typically... Uh, we typically take a moment to play a quick little game, which I think Carson has prepared for us. I have, yeah. Carolina really comes up front with all the like, oh, welcome. And then I come in with a demented game. So <laughs> here we go. Um, so JJ, this week, we are going to be playing a game that we love around these parts. It is called the Untitled Letterboxed Game. Are you familiar mm. with Letterboxd? Yes. yes, I am. So you you know all this for the audience. I'll say if you've not listened to this show before, if you don't know this game, uh, Letterboxd is a film-based social media app uh, in which people will go on and rate movies on like a one to five star scale. And oftentimes they will leave little written reviews for those movies. Uh, so I have gone on Letterboxd. I have found three reviews for three different movies. Uh, one of those movies is a review for Fallen Angels. Uh, and then the other two are for two different movies. These are all either half star or one star reviews. I'm going to read the reviews. Uh, and then, JJ, we're going to see if you can guess which one is a review for Fallen Angels. Okay. All and right. then bonus points if you happen to be able to guess the other two. Um, well, yeah, it's a totally coherent website at all times. So yeah, no, it'll it's, be super easy. Yeah, it's like it's not like, the most demented uh, little little cesspool. It is not the epitome of you think you're in the forum, but you're really in the circus. Not at all. Uh, as I like to say, it's not the number one argument against populism in our age. I think. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, so I'm going to read the reviews here. I'll say I'll give I'll give you a hint, and, and you know, Caroline, if you want to throw in a guess there after JJ's done, you can do so too. Sure. Are, uh, all three reviews from three? Uh, I'll say still pretty popular in America. Asian directors, all of whom have films in the Criterion Collection. Okay. Good hint. There you go. So we're going to start number one here. Uh, this is One Star Review, watched very recently, February 6th, 2022. So there were good fight scenes in this movie, and I actually really enjoyed the first part when the premise and the characters were being set up. However, as the movie went on, it just started to lose me. It followed characters I didn't really care about or have enough information on, and honestly... I just did not think the story was very interesting. As the title says, though, 
I did like the fight scenes. And then it's just the name of an actress in this movie in brackets. Even though sometimes it admittedly broke my immersion because I just couldn't get behind all the randomness. Hmm. Well, like, hmm. Hmm. Find the other one. Review number two, also one star, watched last October 15th. Why are the only sane people in this literal assassins? Anyways, I'm sorry <laughs> I didn't get it at all, even though it was messy and the cinematography was poopy. Full permission for an insane film person to tell me why this is the best film ever. Okay. Wow. Permission. Best film okay, ever. Bye. Ever. Okay. Coming ever. Up. And then one half star, watched January 23rd. Disgusting. More than two hours of watching some psycho pervert sick fantasies. What the fuck was this? No amount of beautiful cinematography will be able to justify the complete exploitation of the actresses and the damage this film has done to my brain. Can't comprehend how this would have such a high rating. Truly at a loss for words. I don't know that I've ever felt that way about a film before. Even in my <laughs> early firebrand days. At a loss for words. <laughs> at a loss of my, the damage it's done to my brain. Okay. Hmm. Well, I will, one of the things I knew about this movie was that it was um, more demented than Chunky Express. So that does have me leaning towards the third one. Um, I do, I mean, again, this was me trying not to do too much of my research beforehand. So I don't know how much fighting is in this movie. I do know that there's very little fighting in Chunky Express. Um, but a little, I mean, mostly running. Um, I do also know, and this was something else I didn't mention, I do, maybe I don't know, I do believe Fallen Angels is not quite that kind of diptych bifurcated storytelling from Chunking Express, but I do think there are two separate stories that kind of come together in the end. So the first one was like, I liked the beginning and then there were other people and then I didn't like it as much, but yeah. Second one that, that said the best movie ever, I don't. I mean, I think this is a well-regarded movie. I don't think it's seen as the best movie ever. There are other contenders from Wong Kar Wai himself. So I'm going to go with review number three is Chunking Express. That is All my, right. or no, Chunking Express. Oh my God. Look what I've done again. It's Fallen <laughs> Angels. Do you uh, have any guesses as to the other two movies? The other two, I don't, I don't know. The first one, for whatever reason, I don't know if this would be what you pulled, like, I was thinking Johnny Toast Throwdown because wow. that is a movie that has really sick fights and then it it definitely goes places that you wouldn't expect. It becomes much more about glaucoma than you would think. Um, <laughs> classic thing, you know, you're watching a movie yeah. and you're like, oh, I, no. this isn't about glaucoma. And then it always is. Always. He um, needs a medical um, marijuana prescription. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I think I've been on too much of a Johnny Toe kick because I've also been thinking about who is the actress that you you shouted out in the mm. second one. Um, I do think it might be Michelle Yeoh, um, but it's probably not his movie, The Heroic Trio. Have you seen that? Have either of you seen The Heroic Trio? I've not seen Heroic no, Trio. No, no. You no. need to. Um, okay, future episode. Um, I got to see it last year at a rep cinema and um, it's... Uh, Maggie Cheung, um, Michelle Yeoh, and then I'm blanking on the third woman. She's mm -hmm. the woman from Stanley Kwan's um, Rouge. Uh, she's like a canto pop singer, I think. Amazing. They're all amazing. They're superheroes. 
it's really disgusting. It's probably vile in many ways, but oh my God, it's so great. I am so sold by that description, JJ. Uh, <laughs> next season, wait. next season. Anyways, I'll say Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon for the second one. For the first one or the second one? The second one. I think that was the one like beautiful cinematography, fight scenes, best movie ever. Why film mm. people? So that's mm. what my guess was going to be too. That's what I'll ah, know. Okay. Okay. Uh, I will say you were very close in that second one. The first one was actually Crouching Tiger. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. And then the third one was Fallen Angels. Oh, so- Or the second one rather, sorry. Oh, Oh, no, okay. Booped it in my brain. Yeah, second one was the full permission for an insane film person to tell me why this is the best film ever. Well, we have a job to do. Yeah, we gotta (laughs) sell. Why is the best film ever? Um, First one was Crouching Tiger. And then the third one- which I thought I could get on that kind of Dementan energy with is uh, The Handmaiden. Oh, oh. Wow. and that is like, that's my favorite director right now. So it's a, okay. a movie that I love. And uh, let me tell you, you go to the one star reviews on Letterboxd for that movie and it is just people being like, what? Gross <laughs> yeah. the the takes are so unhinged it is almost it is yeah. almost a detriment if you try to be like well what movie could they be talking about because mm-hmm. like well, now i'm thinking about it, i'm like yeah i could write that and give it the full five stars it deserves <laughs> well, yeah handmaiden all the bad reviews were either like gross barf hate or they were which was like i think a little bit more of an interesting take but oftentimes weren't read well as like just why movies about lesbians directed by straight guys. And I'm like, okay, well, it's like, yeah, you can talk about that. It's maybe not so much the handmaid. But anyway, uh, great job. Good game. Uh, are we ready to go watch Fallen Angels? I uh, sure am. Excellent. Well, then I we will. Am. Yeah, we will see you guys all uh, after the break when we go watch Fallen Angels. We're back. Yes, we are. And JJ, you just watched Fallen Angels for the first time. I did. I did. I did. I did do my homework for the show. Good. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> it would have been really, really, uh, really hard to do this next 45 or so <laughs> minutes if you hadn't. Um, so, you know, what's first impression, Fallen Angels, what's coming right? What's coming right to mind? Like, what did you think of the film? I mean, it rocks, right? <laughs> oh, this movie absolutely. Is, this movie Super is cool. so cool. Um, and it's one of those things, too, where I, I I feel like I'm glad that this is one of the few remaining Wongs I had left because e- even though it is in so many ways so closely tied to at least the production history of Chunking Express, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of the illusions in the film itself, um, it is so different. Like going back and reading the contemporary reviews of this movie that were like, oh, retread of Chunkin Express. It's like, are you kidding me? This movie looks insane. This yes. movie moves in a way that is so different from Chunkin Express. It has oh, not yeah. only, I mean, obviously, like it has a more sinister energy, um, a lot more blood than Chunkin Express, but like just the like, I think my takeaway immediately was like Wong freaked it. And boy, did he freak it. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm kind of glad that you started there because I was re-watching this this week and I was thinking, like, I was like, ooh, how like how hard am I gonna have to fight the urge to make this 
secretly a Chung King like tandem episode um, because there is there is so much of that there. And I mm-hmm. think that you're right. That idea. I see so much of Chung King in this and I see so much of that. Like, yes, that production history, how this kind of started as part of that and then morphed into its own thing that needed to kind of live its own kind of live on its own. Um, that's fairly like that's very evident i feel like from the film but also like anybody calling this a retread that that is actually shocking because yeah the metaphor that kind of like hit my brain watching them almost back to back was like it feels a lot to me like an album and this is kind of the b-sides and it's got its own identity but it is still the same you know, larger artistic expression, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah, it's it, but so much darker, so much weirder. I way prefer Fallen Angels to Chunking Express. I feel like I'm probably in the minority there. I'm a weirdo, but it's just way vibesier for me in, in a, a hundred different ways. Can I ask a question? Okay, I I don't want to make this a Chunking Express podcast. Yes. I have a lot yes. to say about Fallen Angels, but yes. um, thinking about that, like Caroline, you said you prefer Chunking, and Carson, you said you now prefer Fallen Angels. Um, which half of Chung King do you prefer? Are you a first half or are you a second half person? Because you're a so Carson is holding up two, which means you are a second half person. Which I love is how the, Tony Lung got his groove back. It's it's <laughs> that's the stuff that I really enjoy. And it's the I, to me, it's the less similar half, right? To Fallen mm-hmm. Angels, if anything, like yeah, like thinking back, what this would have been like if this were the actual third story at the end would be such a strange shock from the ending of that second story heading into this one. Whereas the first one kind of leads into it in, in so many different ways. All right, Caroline, yeah. which one do you prefer? Sorry. I think, no, you're good. I, I also think I'm a second half, but like, it's like 1A, 1B. Um, I just, I, I really, I mean, with, with a lot of, with a lot of like Wong Kar Wai's films, it's kind of that thing where there are just like, moments in each of his films that kind of just like that I that just like hit me and it's like and it's like that is the moment that like sealed my fate of like okay I'm on board like I stand this movie and for me it is the moment in Chunking Express when Tony Lung goes back to his apartment and is like and it's like you know like I I went home on my lunch because like you never know she might be there and I was like oh like that's so like small and tiny and like you know, but it's so it's so like relatable. And so just like that, that feeling of like when you're in love of just like, I'm just like, well, maybe they'll be like, you know, maybe if I just go to the places we used to go, they'll be there. And like, that is the moment that sold it for me. But also the first half is great. But mm-hmm. Fallen Angels. Yes. Yes. I can oh, that's see... the movie we're talking about. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, it needs must be remarked. I'm just going to hop in here. Um, the joke of violently rendering services upon people until they pay you to stop is uh, that's a great bit. It makes me laugh every single time, especially when the guy with like the, the ponytail and the mustache, like every time he comes up um, and it's like, oh, not you again. He's like, God damn it. It's a bit that never stops up, giving. When he pops up in the end again, <laughs> it's so, yes. so, so funny. Funny. It's it's the that half of Fallen Angels I actually, and I'll say, I think in terms of the way that this story is bifurcated, it hits my brain a little bit, a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And I personally, I just like the aesthetic balance of one half of this story is re- like fairly serious crime drama that's just 
about longing. And then the other half of this story is almost pure bits is just like nearly a hundred percent, just Looney Tunes energy. For some reason, I, that, that speaks to me on an aesthetic level in like so highly. I, I can't exactly put in words why, but it does. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think too, I think one of the reasons why I find it to be so funny is because they're technically both crime stories. Yeah. yeah. Because technically yeah. he is breaking and entering into all of these shops and like, you know, like even though I think Looney Tunes is a good comparison, even though like the violence is fairly comical, he is still like, like violently like holding people down until they give him money so it's like it is like kind of the the like hyper real hyper violent like super noir like always have the long ash hanging from the cigarette like hitman crime drama and then just like your average like con man who is kind of lost a little bit and is just kind of doing whatever he can figure out and what he can figure out is to break into a fruit shop and try to lure a woman in and sell her an eggplant like three in the morning it's it's yeah it's great and it's i mean it's so much more complicated in terms of like how that kind of structure is stretched throughout the film like there's a couple of reels dedicated to the first story another reel then to the second story and then we we switch back and forth until they finally come together in that incredible ending we'll talk about whereas Chung King is that sort of first 40 minutes is this story. And then we have a very extended kind of second side, um, yes. which when I was thinking about this, so we talked about this a little bit when, before I had seen the movie about how Chung King Express is born out of Wong's kind of frustration with ashes of time. He decides I have six weeks to go shoot a movie. I never made a student film. Let me go make my student film. Uh, and then it results in what, in my opinion, is one of like, the most like aesthetically, narratively, thematically perfect movies ever made. And this movie is, I think in many ways, like nearly it's equal in terms of how it's working together, all these different strands, bringing these different themes together, complicating Chunking Express. But to me, it felt like, it felt like this was the student film that he made. This has that like kind of energy of like, why don't I try everything out? Why don't I throw yeah. whatever I have? Why don't I take the genre I first started in the gangster film and do something weird with it? Do something totally alien. Use the widest possible lens that I can. Lens so wide that Christopher Doyle was like, oh God, our actresses are going to kill us. Um, and then why don't I do... The, the other thing that's so fascinating about that second side is like... Um, Ho Chi Minh is like maybe the closest stand-in to Wong any of his films have ever had. I mean, he's technically a film director kind of by the, the moment the film ends and he's so moved by his own work. And yet he is a Looney Tunes person who force feeds a family ice cream until they have to ask, <laughs> will we die? And then cuts the man's hair off at the end of the movie. So it just feels like there's like an anything goes stick, whatever we can, like, we'll see what happens um, kind of energy to it that Chunking Express, despite having that kind of like almost quasi mystical kind of like mm-hmm. origin story, this movie feels so much more like I needed to get something off my chest. I needed to go out there and make something. And yet, so I watched it twice. Uh, I watched both versions. I will say I watched maybe one of the versions a little faster than the other, so I didn't take <laughs> that much time. But um, 
on that second watch, just a lot, like so many things become so clear and it does start to feel more like, yes, this does have that kind of same careful considered energy as Chunkin Express has, despite their frenzied productions. But yeah, that was something I, I was shocked by the energy of this movie. Yeah, I kept reading. I mean, it's just the, and, and if you're looking at like IMDb or Wikipedia or like any of the critics consensus kind of blurbs, like both Chunking and this movie, I think the thing, and a lot of Wong Kar Wai movies, I think if you look at like the critical consensus from Americans, a lot of the time the word is like indulgent. It's very indulgent. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't find that about Chunking Express very much. Like, I think that Again, and I think it's more of a my personal thing, like my like hang up that film is I'm like, I'm a little alienated by this in a way that I can't quite overcome. I will say Fallen Angels, there are moments where it feels so and I think it's hitting on the thing that you were saying, JJ, it feels so indulgent in a way that's fantastic that I love. But just like anytime he carries out a hit, the way that he like shoots violence, the way he chooses to do that, it feels so it feels like he's like, oh, my God, I'm having fun. Like, oh, this is this is we're going to shoot this in an interesting way. You've never seen somebody do a gunfight like quite like this before. And like, yeah, I don't think it's a knock against the film at all. But I do feel that indulgence and just the the subjectivity of the camera, like in mm -hmm. Fallen Angels is so intense. Just the way it moves, how much of it is handheld, the wide lenses. It's like it, it does just communicate an entirely different feel and an entirely different message i think by the end of the film when you get to that fantastic ending too it's good stuff yeah it's good <laughs> yeah i mean you know you know i think i will i will go three for three i will go on record as to say that fallen angels is indeed good um <laughs> yeah no and i mean i jj i like a lot of the stuff that you brought up i mean like the being kind of again not to make this a chunking stand podcast but like the way that like you know, we kind of think of student films in kind of one or one or two ways, either like small, simple, like what somebody can do with what they have, just like that. Or there is the other like, you know, the oh, my God, they tried everything. I mean, we did a we did an episode last I, year on Pi. Yeah, yep. on Aronofsky's Pi. And it's that thing that. of like, oh, it has that energy of like of like a young director who kind of doesn't know how to tell themselves no. And just like they are so full of art that they can't not put all the art on the screen. And maybe it's a little too much art, but also like it's pretty cool that they cram that much art in. And I do feel kind of like that again, that kind of like dual side of the coin with these two where like Chunking is very much that like simple, like like it's slow. It's like what's the what's the craziest like, you know, the craziest action sequence, you know, so to speak. Uh, just kind of like walking very swiftly through uh, like through alleyways or train stations. Yeah. The camera's um, moving faster than the people. Yeah. Uh, where like in this, yeah, those action sequences are so like, I, I almost hesitate to call them action sequences because they don't have that feeling of like, you know, there isn't that, that clear, like there's a conflict going on and two, like two characters are like really going at it. It is much more of like, you know, almost like a, it's like almost, I don't want to say like almost like a fetishization of it, but like it almost kind of is. It's just that thing of like, look how fun and sexy and cool and like badass this is. It is less about like conveying story. Like it's less about like, oh, this is how hard it is to be a hitman. Or this is what it's like to be a hitman. And more of just like, damn, isn't it cool that he has two guns and he, the listeners at home cannot see how I'm just sort of <laughs> waving my arms in tandem. But 
you know, like, isn't it kind of cool how his arms just kind of go in like circles and then people are falling down around him. Blood is hitting the lens and like, and it's, you know, it's going in that like, uh, you know, the reduced frame rate. Um, and it's like, I don't know, it's like maximalist in such a small way. The blood on no, the lens totally. is one of the coolest things I think I've ever seen. This movie is so far outside of anything that I'm uh, used to or like have a lot of experience watching. So the first time the blood hit the lens, I was just in awe of like, yeah, that's like a very simple idea, but I can't believe someone had it and executed yeah. it. Well, and it's not one that he made up, but it feels like sure you know it somehow it feels like a, extremely like unique and like original in this context yeah and it's so much of wong generally i think i mean um wong obviously gets his start writing screenplays or i don't know why i said obviously he gets his start writing screenplays i read a lot by the way before this <laughs> you episode. no way i don't I, um, I don't know that i buy that a researcher yeah. no <laughs> I read cite your sources jj cite your sources um, no i'm kidding go on uh okay so the peter brunette biography is one of the things i read um <laughs> i read well, probably 60 70 pages of david boardwell's planet hong kong and then like i don't know seven or eight interviews anyways um uh, Wong gets his start uh, in graphic design, um, and he, I think there's like a tendency for people to overstate like he was a graphic designer, so that's why he has such a good eye when he himself says graphic design has nothing to do with his movies. He got that degree because there was less homework than there was for other classes, <laughs> and his real education comes when he starts working in TV. Um, and gets into this like director apprenticeship program, writes a ton of scripts, um, many of them credited or like 10 of them, I think credited to him, but he says he wrote nearly 50 film scripts at that time. Many of them credited to his mentor. Um, and then he gets to make his own movie in the middle of that kind of Hong Kong genre explosion where there is just money for anything that has guns in it. And Chungking Express six years after kind of that explosion is still financed because he says this is a cop movie so there are yes. cops in it please give me money and they're like awesome and the other thing that's so crazy about Wong starting as a screenwriter is are you familiar with how he writes his screenplays because I don't think I knew this before this I, I am not so please enlighten me so yeah. he doesn't write a screenplay typically um, especially as time goes on, he starts to, he will basically show up to set, uh, and he will spend four hours working out where the cameras are going to go and figuring out the dialogue. And as we know, having just watched Fallen Angels, there's not that much of that. So it makes sense that maybe it's being made up on the spot, but he kind of, because he wrote so many screenplays in such a, a short amount of time, he feels like he has story structure down, uh, to a certain degree that he knows what he wants and putting it on the page to him since he's directing the movies himself it feels like he's robbing himself of like all the images he has in his mind and he can't put them mm -hmm. down so the fact that fallen angels feels like it's changing so much that's because it is non-stop i mean tony leung will give quotes like there's no point in trying to figure out anything before we arrive to set and christopher toyle feels the same way i don't know how they feel frustrated but energized and frustrated maybe but well, yeah. um i mean yeah. they both they both they both work with him multiple multiple times so if it is frustrating which i can imagine it is in its own way it's got to be at least at least enjoyable enough to continue to work with the man totally. i gotta imagine the other oh go ahead 
I was just sorry. I was just going to say, I got to imagine you watch the final product and you go, oh, okay, it was worth it. Uh, no matter what level of frustration, as soon as, as soon as we start, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, Ugh, we did it again. I get it. <laughs> um, the other thing that I found so interesting about his process is he edits while they're making the movie, um, mm-hmm. which I think you also feel because I, I mean, so much of how people conceive of Wong generally, especially now that he hasn't made a movie in so long, but might be making a 24 part, 24 hour miniseries right now. Um, of course. So much of what people think about are the visuals is that kind of like hyper stylized look. Maybe not the visuals of Fallen Angels with its extreme wide angle lenses, but kind of the way it looks, especially in the mood for love, the slow motion, the mm-hmm. much less choppy slow motion of that film yes. or the step printing sequences from Chun King Express. But Wong is just as interesting to me as an editor. And of course, Chris Doyle, a huge the cinematographer, works with him on a number of his films, but and I'm blanking on the name now. Chang is the last name. He has worked with the same editor from the first film and up through The Grandmaster. Um, mm-hmm. And that propulsive way he cuts in this movie, especially like it's in there in Chungking Express, but here it is like multiplied like tenfold where that first kind of sequence we are just moving so fast and we have characters sitting and then the cut and they're madly rushing and all that kind of energy the kind of of move between quiet and loud and stable and in motion it just you you feel that energy that's happening on set you can tell that it's being worked out almost in real time and yet when you step back from it you are like again like Corey said you're like how did he do it again how did he find all of these kind of of rhymes while he was doing this he's like jay-z yeah that's something i did not expect to hear today but you're not (laughs) wrong it's all Um, in his head yeah yeah no, and I mean, like we we did an episode on In the Mood for Love last year and kind of talked a lot about um, that kind of the process of that movie of how like, kind of like you said, like there wasn't really like a top to bottom script that was written. They shot like, I think, like, I think we said something like four hours and then, you know, it's Kubrickian now levels of like, just, yeah. you know, shooting and shooting and shooting. Yeah. And um, I mean, we talked about it with that film, but I think it's really true of this one as well that like even though like even though everything they shot and everything they like quote unquote wrote or everything that like um kind of like was initially conceived to go in the film like not even close to all of it made it in it's like because all of that stuff like kind of like what you were saying jj like how it how they start and they like they start filming and they figure out what works with the camera and then they edit that and then and they like move on to the next portion. It's like, even though things like come and go out of kind of seemingly nowhere, like it does feel so aesthetically whole with it within itself that it's just like, it never feels like in any of his movies, but especially in this one, like it never feels like you're kind of like, I'm never left wanting for something. Like I'm never left kind of wanting for like, ah, oh, why didn't he go into that more? Because like, especially like this film, um, how much it is about just like, many of his films like about that loneliness and about that kind of like um both that like very cramped like claustrophobic feeling of being in like this big city but also feeling so distant from everyone else um which is something that you know Christopher Doyle talked a lot about with like that use of their wide angle lenses um like the way all of that just like feels like so much of a whole like it doesn't 
bother you when things kind of like come in for a stint and then just leave forever or come in for a stint and don't come back for 50, 55 minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's and the invention of it's really exciting, too. I think I think we've kind of been talking about this in little bits, but just like it's like the blood on the camera. It's like not something that he invented, but seeing him do it in that context, it really feels like it's being invented in that moment. And like, it's for some reason with this movie, watching it the second time, I was just like, there is something to certain little things that he'll pull off that you'll just be like, amazing, like amazing. That's the like the silliest, simplest little thing. And you're just like, that's so cool. I keep thinking about the, um when they go to the stadium, when he like takes, and it's it's like technically, I think it's, sort of two separate individual times, but they're shot together so that it's suggesting that he went back and she wasn't there. But just like the fact that like, the voiceover tells us like, oh, well, we went to see a match and then it ended and we stuck around. And like half of my brain is like, okay, that's an incredible way of justifying the fact that you couldn't, like you don't have the budget to shoot an ongoing sports match with people in the arena all watching it. But you do have the budget to be like, hey, can we sneak into this and like, you know, shoot for two days in this stadium to get it. And like, it's just stuff like that. It's so simple, but it's just when you're just like, ah, filmmaking. Yes, they pulled it off. They have a stadium in the background. And it's so unimportant to the like, you know, again, we've talked about how like the plot is so far from the most like active, dramatically, you know, intense and rich part of this movie. But it's so unimportant to the plot. The fact that they could just do that. It's cool. It's exciting. It's inventive. It feels fun. Totally. It's actually something that Wong complained about a lot when he was on the press tour for this film. Mm -hmm. The fact that he was upset at how many locations he had already used in his earlier movies. And he was like, where can I get away with finding new locations? Uh, And one of the things I loved about this, because it it describes, I think, a general approach to this movie is he was like, well, I figured out I could use a lot of the same locations without people catching on because it's darker than it was mm. the first time. So yes. even that, there's this, that's why that stand-in of Ho Chi Mu is so interesting because there is this prankster-ish, I can't believe I'm getting away with it, energy to how Wong just makes his movies. Um, that is so, so and like enlivening. Vital. Yeah. And I mean, again, I don't know if this is like literally the same exact, um, the same exact location, but I noticed when watching it that, um, so I believe if I am remembering correctly, um, I was watching some of the world of Wong Kar Wai criterion stuff. Um, and I believe if I remember correctly, they said that Tony Lung's apartment in, in the, not sorry, not in the move for love. Um, in Chungking Express was actually Christopher Doyle's apartment. Yes. Um, it was. and that they could just use it. And then I was That's noticing funny. today when I rewatched it that um when uh when and I'm blanking on names, which I shouldn't, but um when the woman who's uh Ming's business partner who's like longing for him the whole time when she there's a moment when she's like in her apartment and she goes to the window and she ashes the cigarette. I'm like, that's the same like window grate. You know, I was like, I was like, that is the same exact window grate. I'm like, I don't know if this is the same apartment or if this is just like a building, a block down the street, but like, yes, that, that same thing of just like, but it does look so different because it's dressed differently. And it is that, that difference between like, you know, (laughs) Wong Kar Wai after dark. I, I stand those window grates hard. I will say that watching Fallen Angels 
watching chunking and seeing especially those particular window grates i know exactly the ones you're talking about caroline yes i'm right now i'm apartment hunting i'm trying to find a new apartment mm. and it has seeing those window grates has kind of put this like total this this standard that i know i'm never going to be able to achieve but i'm looking at things on zillow and just being like nah they don't have the grates nah that's not the right windows like nah, I, why would i live there i don't have the cool windows like it's it's you're absolutely like messaging directed. your landlord and you're like can we Get yeah. some degraded film stock that we don't realize is messed up, mm-hmm. and then we'll shoot in black and white. And then, could we have someone outside the window spritzing it with water the entire time? <laughs> because that shot, I mean, that's that how they get this. Is, is that how they get the shinies? That's incredible. Yes, there is oh, someone, that's like, so cool. Spraying water on the edges. Um, I have I pulled it up when you were talking about windows because I, I need to talk about that shot because. Yeah, a lot of the black and white shots in this movie are the result of bad film canisters that they realized were bad. And they were like, well, what can we do with this? And they were like, we can use black and white here. Um, And I believe they did it. They shot the opening shot first, which is black and white and maybe the most extreme wide angle. Mm-hmm. Like they look insane. Uh, Boardwell describes them as gargoyles, which is such an evocative description of the hunched backs that come from that fisheye distortion. Um, but then they decided, let's continue to use that at these moments of alienation, mostly. But this one's just kind of like melancholic, like missed connection kind of thing. One person's forming the connection, the other isn't. And what's so you talked a lot about how much was thrown out of In the Mood for Love. And uh, Wong loves to talk about all the NGs, no goods that they have on set and need to reshoot over and over again. But even just to pull off that shot, which in the movie is two minutes on screen of those two characters with water falling in slow motion as they are very slow and everyone behind them is moving very fast. That scene is 12 minutes of shooting because they were shooting at, um, I believe, yes, four frames per second. So like wow. that shot, which is such God. a standout, it's worth it. But even that, I mean, you have someone spraying water for like 12 minutes as you, you shoot at four frames per second for two minutes of time. Another thing where it's like you got away with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and <sighs> and I mean, that... That leads kind of nicely. We've been kind of dancing around it and we've alluded to it a couple of times. But um, I mean, you mentioned it, JJ, that first shot that they that they started film, um, the first one that they filmed. Um, so like Christopher Doyle and Wong Kar Wai have basically both been like, like on the first day of shooting, we got we broke out the ultra wide angle lens because we just had no space mm-hmm. and we started filming and um like we loved, we loved the way that it looked. Uh, it was like a very happy accident because it does create that, like that wide, that wide angle is like, you know, the subject feels very close to the camera. And even though the person in the background is only actually three, four feet behind them in space, it makes them look so much further away. So it gets that kind of like cramped feeling. Like they say you, you bump elbows with so many people, like in mm-hmm. your, in your day, like it gets that, like everyone is in this massive city, like all on top of each other feeling, but also like emotionally, everybody's so far away. And they just kind of talked about how, like, then they would try to shoot other stuff with like a more standard lens and they just hated it. They're like, it doesn't work. They're like, no, like what we, like that happy accident we fell into, which is like needing that wide angle lens is just like the mood for this film. And, um, and I think that's really cool. And I watched a little YouTube essay about some guy trying to hunt down the exact lens that they used. Um, and basically they ended up using 
Um, and I'm not a gearhead. And it was one of those things where I watched the video. I'm like, I'll remember those numbers. And I simply do not remember <laughs> those numbers. Um, but it was like they used a modified lens that um, basically got it over half of this film in the widest lens you can possibly shoot film on. And that's like over half the film. And then the rest of it is like one of the wider lenses that like is ever just like standard on a film set. Yeah, I believe it. So on like around when they were shooting Chongqing, the widest they felt was acceptable was 18 millimeter. And they are using a 6.8 millimeter lens yes, on this film. God. And a lot of those NGs, those no goods are the result of, I mean, a wide angle lens, it makes everything look bigger and further away. So in order to get these many medium close-ups that we have of these actors and two of them in the frame, you have to be very close to them. And a lot of those NGs were Christopher Doyle's camera casting a shadow on the characters and then having to figure out how do we get rid of this camera so we can actually pull this off. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that is, that is, thank you for remembering the number, JJ. Um, it was, it, I think it was something like they started with like, it was like, I think a nine millimeter and then they had a modification for it that took it down to 6.8. And those are really like the two things they pretty much shot with and nine kind of being like, you know, the, the widest lens Christopher Doyle just like kind of would like standard like have, but that doesn't really get used too often unless you need that hyper wide. And then they modified it even further to get it wider, which is just like really incredible. And Wong's two most famous movies, Chung King and especially in the mood for love are largely telephoto films. I mean, he talks a lot about how Chung King was shot at a very far distance where the lens flattened the image and made the actors feel closer together. And mm -hmm. in the mood for love is all those kind of cramped hallways where we are flattening all these mm. small spaces even more. And then yes. this is we have the small spaces and we make them gigantic. We make them look like a Buster Rhymes video. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can I just briefly shout out? I'm kind of skipping to the end a little bit, but Caroline mentioned it. I am so obsessed with the final monologue of this film. And I find oh, yeah. the, especially the kind of the imagery and the metaphor of the, we rub elbow, elbows every day. So sometimes I rub so much that it bleeds like that stuff lights my brain on fire. And I don't know why the connection I made, especially you talking about how, you know, we wrote 50 screenplays before we ever became a director. So much of the, so much of the the dialogue in this film and especially the, uh, the voiceover does feel like the kind of thing that is so absurdly simple that only someone who has you know put in the whatever 30,000 hours of working as a screenwriter could possibly come up with it was the same thing I was re-watching the Spielberg West Side Story like two nights ago and like it's the same thing where like that is a movie where like every so often somebody will say just a sentence and it's so absurdly perfect and so evocative but it's like five words and it's like Oh, yeah, that's the kind of sentence that you can only put together if you wrote Angels in America 25 years ago. Like that's it's the only like you have to be so fucking good at your job and do it for so long that you can get to that level of simplicity. And that's like the rubbing elbows so much it bleeds like that's that's what that requires is being at the absolute top of your game. hundred percent. And just the yeah. accumulated like thematic interests he has and like the little ticks he has in his writing, which. One of the things that's so interesting about him is he is both this entirely visual filmmaker 
with characters who rarely speak, including, I mean, we haven't mentioned it, one of our protagonists in this film is mute and does not speak. But mm-hmm. at the same time, he is like using voiceover in a way that would make Martin Scorsese blush. Like there is so much voiceover end to end in this movie. And yet it is full of all, all these like, it's that distance. I think if the characters were saying things out loud and saying these kinds of things to each other, it would feel so hokey or like a totally yeah. different kind of film. 100%. The fact that you have these images paired with this kind of poetic language. I mean, it is just like, it, it is intoxicating. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, I mean, it's, it's the camera is backing up the, like it, the camera is shooting them in such a way that it's, it's, implying that like there is a truth so big inside these people right now that they could never speak it and then you have the voiceover being so often i mean oftentimes also very silly and very weird and very playful but often so packed with meaning and poetry that like oh yeah no there is a truth inside these people that's like too big to speak you know yeah well no and i mean it's just like it is that really like wonderful thing Carson that like I think you're absolutely right about just like you kind of have to be so good at your job that you can like hone in on something like that Mm -hmm. so simply and JJ to your point too like the idea that like you can't um like if these were like lines of dialogue said out loud you know um JJ, for your reference, Corey, Carson, and I were all we're all reformed theater kids. We all have theater degrees because of course we do. And um, you know, it's one of those things where it's like you talk about in acting. It's like it's like if you are like delivering a line to your scene partner, like you're trying to change something in them, you're trying to convey something, you're trying to like like make a change in the world around you. You're trying to accomplish something. And I think like a character looking another character in the eye and trying to motivate some of these things would feel like you said extremely hokey and like extremely like you know uh extremely freshman uh playwriting but when it is that thing of it's like they're saying this to themselves in their head and we're just getting this view and we are seeing how these thoughts correlate with they with their sometimes very simple sometimes very absurd day-to-day life I mean I think it hits on a lot of those things that we as people do like the example that's coming to my mind is like the other day when it was really nice out, I walked outside and right on the tree above my car, there was one crow just like sitting on the branch right above my car. And I looked at this bird and I was like, wow, that's so beautiful. I'm like, I like, that's so beautiful. And I just like looked at it and it just like looked at me. And then it like caught a couple of times that I got in my car and drove away. I'm like, wow, what a sign from the universe. I'm like that didn't fucking mean anything. There was a bird in the tree, but like for a moment I was just kind of like, struck by this really large bird in the tree above my car and like that's kind of this thing that like they're going through is like you kind of like to be sane in this world you kind of have to like poeticize a lot of the you know a lot of the nothing randomness in your in your day-to-day life and I think that he like really hits on that in this film Totally. And this film, too, a lot of that nothing randomness is coming from the city more than it does in Chungking Express. I mean, so many of Chungking no. Express's recurring motifs are things you could find anywhere. We have canned pineapple here in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, but this McDonald's. one is so, yeah, McDonald's. We have those, too. <laughs> um, so much of this is about the kind of like, like, there's so many more of those like kind of super sweeping movements across the city with time-lapse footage that are just like 
it is it is so much more expansive in terms of what it is finding that meaning in, and maybe less specific, but much bigger, much vaster in in where it's looking. Absolutely. Can we talk about the music because we have not talked? Oh about yeah. The music oh yes, at all. please. Oh yeah. Talk about the music. Um, I am I'm interested in music for a number of ways. One, um, like Wong. Um, does often apparently use the silent film technique of playing mood music on set mm. in order to set what his characters are going to do. It's something so Kubrick did as well. And I'm finding more and more directors use that technique way more than you might think. But even more interesting is like he has said that the way he communicates to Chris Doyle what the movie is going to be because he does not have a finished script um, is that he will play him music. And then Chris Doyle will find his way in. Okay, that's what this movie is. It is that. Like, they're teaching each other to dance. And mm. whereas Chungkei Express obviously has um, the Mamas and Papas and um, blanking on the dub song right now. It's, uh, it's Dreams by the Cranberries. But oh, and Dreams by the Cranberries, yeah. Yeah, but it's sung in... Uh, yep, yeah, Fei Wong's version. Incredible. Yes. Um, where And then this film is like trip hop which is so 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 interesting i mean it fits the the mood perfectly and i was i will say like i waited to do most of my research until after i watched the movie and i was going so insane every time that song came up and i was like is this like a canto pop version of massive attack what is this this sounds like karma coma is this karma coma only to find out it's not Karma Coma. It is a sample of Karma Coma because they could not afford Karma Coma in the film. But there was, I was enjoying the set pieces, but definitely the second time when I was like placed it and I knew it was not Karma Coma, but it was, I enjoyed it so much more. But that kind of like, again, just drawing from what is, what is in the ether, like Massive Attack is the most massive band right now. Let's use that and let's find a way to use it and make it our own as well. It's so interesting. I love that song. I just downloaded oh, it on so my good. iPod like yesterday. Yeah, it's so it's so it's so weird. Makes me feel a way where I'm like, I don't know the way I feel, but I know I feel right now. It's one of those. <laughs> did you, did you just iPod? say? I was just gonna say. Did you just say I downloaded that song onto my iPod? My iPhone, the iPod <laughs> function of my iPhone. Okay, look, look. I'm an Apple Music person. I admit it. And I call uh, it my iPod sometimes. Yeah, it's great. Why would I download a second app? That's stupid. Uh, I will sorry, say this. I... Look, the other thing about it, about using that song kind of, is I think Mezzanine and Blue Lines are the more acclaimed of that three album run from Massive Attack, but Protection is the best one. So brings a, brings me joy to know that Wong also found a lot of enjoyment in Protection. <laughs> Man loves pop music. Man loves pop music. Ugh. I'm just like, I'm just thinking about that stadium again, you know? I got lost in that. <laughs> I'm just back at the stadium. <laughs> the other thing that's so interesting to think about, too, with the use of the wide-angle lens, like that first shot is all about, like, having these two people so close together but making them feel so far apart. Um, and the last shot returns us to a uh, close-up mm. with agent i mean caroline you said earlier you couldn't remember the name that character doesn't have a name okay great literally like every single thing i read about the movie used a different name to describe her some of them very long uh others like dispatcher i was like i don't know if that quite gets it agent is the one that boardwell uses and i like that one it's simple it's another close-up 
of agent yeah. in that extreme wide angle. But this time it is used, and it's used like this a couple other times. There's another fight scene where this breaks out. It's really Hochimo's kind of um, fight scenes where this happens, where you have someone in close up, very close to the camera, super distorted, and you get in the negative space, not like a Wellsian kind of deep focus where you can follow all the different planes, but you're kind of like, is something happening back there? And then it, in, in here, I guess it's not the final shot, but the final sequence is what I meant. In the, yeah. Um, yeah. In the restaurant when she's eating the noodles, mm-hmm. the most depressed noodle eating that anyone has ever done. Um, she can't even chew them. I know. They're she just can't even slurp out. them. They're just, yeah. Oh, oh. sad noodles. <laughs> and the fight breaks out behind, right? The kind of, and the, mm-hmm. the final, like that is the important action that brings them together. It happens entirely in the background. Um, that we have not really even been focusing on uh, in the the early parts of that. And the second time I watched it, I that's all I was looking at. I was like, what are the actions that are setting this up? And it's just, it's a classic technique. It's been used since deep focus became a thing, right? You just but said Orson Welles. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. used here in such such a, an, an interesting kind of kind of way where... Again, it's not that your eyes can go anywhere because you have this blown out face. You have like big head mode and NFL blitz turned on. You are focusing (laughs) on agent. And yet in the background, this kind of like cacophony of violence is about to break out. And it's so it's just it's cool. It's like all of his stuff. It's so cool. It's just the anytime the two narratives break bonk together anytime they rub elbows in this movie like it's it's always so it like it always feels so so exciting especially in that last scene because it, it almost feels like there's a second movie happening back there that's about to break into this one you know like it's as much as it is these two concurrent stories that are thematically connected and at times cross over with one another they do feel very distinct and very separate up until that moment you know, and then, I mean, just them driving away is such a perfect, like, oh, we tied the bow. Oh, it's all, you know, oh, it's all here. Like, you know, it's it's kind of miraculous. It's one of those things where you're like, how, how did, how did, how did they get them together? You know? It's great. Yeah. I mean, they tie the bow, but also like, but also like they don't at all. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. Yeah. Like, well, no, no, <laughs> I know what you mean. No, I know what you mean. The like, monologue is about how like, well, nothing is resolved and I guess this is good for now, but. You see the sun. There's some hope. Finally, we're in the daylight, you know? Yeah. But that's his ending. It is wholly emotionally satisfying. It's like what you said earlier, Caroline. You're not left wanting for more, Mm -hmm. but it still is ambiguous. Even Chung King, which has what seems like such a happy ending. I have no idea what happens to those people after that ends. And I'm not even thinking about what happens. I'm happy for the moment we're given. And here, I think we have an assumption for what happens. They probably don't strike up a huge long enduring friendship but in that moment that motorcycle ride is enough that is enough for the two of them um the motorcycle ride plus the usage of the song is enough for them in that moment yeah Um, and i mean you really get that sense that like on the one hand like yes yes carson like i see why your knee-jerk reaction is kind of like oh they tied the bow like it's there it's like they've they've done the thing and also you get the um you get the feeling that like there could be just as much of this movie right afterwards you know like there could be just as many like 
And then I did this for a while and then it didn't work out. And then I did this, like you, you get the sense that like this kind of like episodic, almost like ways that their lives are unfolding. is just going to keep going for a while. But like you said, Gigi, but like for now, like. Yeah. It's the feeling that I think (laughs) it's no longer the secretly chunking podcast. It's now secretly an in the mood for love podcast. Uh, But like, it's the feeling that the, the, the way the thing that he doesn't in the mood for love of just, well, we're going to shoot a ton of shit and we're going to cut down to what needs to be. And especially with that movie ends, I think makes it feel almost mythical. There's like a quality, I think, to Fallen Angels, especially and, and to in the mood for love where it's like, well, we're approaching like a level of like almost religious, like cyclical you know, story structure here. There's like, a, okay, you know, and in the move for love, it's like, well, these two people, they kind of did this and then they did this. And you leave that movie feeling like, I feel like in some way, in some life, they're going to keep doing that forever and ever and ever. And like, and that's kind of what the end of Fallen Angels is. It's like, it's not even these two characters riding a motorcycle almost. It feels like these two archetypes briefly touching, knowing that they're never going to again. You know, or maybe maybe in a thousand years, they'll come back and they'll do it again. And then they'll go back apart and they'll ride a, I don't know, a cyberpunk motorcycle and then whatever, you know. Yeah. And it's it's mirrored with I mean, we should probably talk about Chunky Express a little bit more because there are all these mirrors to it. And of course, one of the biggest mirrors is that you have a repeat cast member. Right. And you have Mm -hmm. him no longer playing police officer 223 or 233, whichever one it is, but now playing escape prison convict 223 mm-hmm. or 233. And of course, the first story in Chunking Express is him being so interested in this killer smuggler and having like this huge kind of emotional relationship that is never really consummated in any way, right? Whereas this is rubbing up against that, not longing for it, and then giving us that huge emotional moment where the two of them come together at the end. One of the other comparisons I wanted to make, because it's so, so important for setting the different mood of this movie, is that in Chunking Express, there is the recurring use of the jukebox in the first story. Mm -hmm. And the jukebox is playing Dennis Brown's Things in Life. That was the one I could not think of. And that is, of course, this, you know, like wistful dub kind of song going back and forth. It's really beautiful, gold, shiny lights all over the bar in that sequence. In this film, the first time the jukebox is activated, Agent, first off, is like all over that thing, like hunched over, holding onto it for dear life. And the song she puts on is not Dennis Brown's Things in Life, an upbeat, bouncy kind of song. It is Laurie Anderson. uh, And it is this super strange, dark, spoken kind of sequence that goes on for a really long time and moves out of that, out of the, the bar where she goes to like feel like she's somewhere where her assistant or her killer has been. Um, but it, it moves into her jacking off in her bedroom, which yeah. is just like you could not have like a a easier tell of this is different than yeah. using so many of those recurring motifs, but deploying them in this totally, totally different way, setting the mood differently, but also the actions are different. Chunking Express is not a movie with a ton of kind of on-screen sex and physical connection. And this movie is. And it makes you wonder, did we want that? 
<laughs> in Chunking Express, maybe not the way Wong kind of kind of shoots those intimate scenes. Yeah, it's I don't know. I earlier in the conversation, Caroline, I think you said something about some of the image. I think we were talking about the, the gunfights and you said there was something almost fetishistic about it. <laughs> and like, ah, oh, like the OK, so what I was preparing the game for the first half of this episode and looking at Letterboxd reviews, it was weird to me just how many Letterboxd reviews would talk about the masturbation scene of like how that just got under people's skin in a way that was kind of fascinating to me because like. There is something there is there is like an eroticism to those scenes. It's very arresting. As you say, it's kind of, you know, it really slaps you in the face. But like, I I don't find that to be the most fetishistic image in this movie by like a long shot. Like it is it's actually very simple and, and it's like it's construction compared to like a lot of the other things that happen in this film. And I don't know, I'm very confused as like to, is that just the power of the thing that you're talking about, JJ, of like, well, it's 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 very sudden, it's very unlike Chung King, it's very unlike the previous scene in the film, it's, you know, it's kind of abrupt. Or is it just like, I don't know, are we, are we in America just like so bad at looking at masturbation in any context that's not like, you know, explicitly fetishistic that we're just, oh, you know about it immediately? It's weird. Yeah, and I mean, it's, I mean, the sequence in the first time it happens, it's very sad. It's not mm. sexy. It's she goes through his garbage and has a monologue that's like, you can learn a lot about a person based on their trash. And then like, and like that's what she's doing because she like loves this person or at least longs for him and can't be around him. And then like the second time it's paralleled um, is her sobbing. Like, yeah. it's not, it's not a, it is not a cool, interesting image where, like, you know, a person, like, a person has the hots for somebody and, like, goes home and and masturbates. It's a, it is a thing about, like, this person is so unfulfilled that, like, literally someone, someone who she thinks she's in love with trash like almost forces her to do this and like i don't think i don't think anybody i don't think i don't think christopher doyle i don't think wong kar why i don't think anybody uh i don't think the character i don't think the actor thinks this is cool and good and sexy so yes it is it is um you know it is kind of in such stark contrast um but another thing that's too, what's so interesting oh, though is that he he is like I'm trying to think right now, not to do anyone a disservice. He is the sexiest filmmaker of my lifetime. Like his movies are just so full of like glorious imagery, loving, longing, lusting. And yet he is very deliberately not the sexiest sex scene filmer of anybody. I mean, I watched Happy Together earlier this week too. And those <laughs> sex scenes, again, they're intimate in a way, but they are not what I would call like... Uh, fetishizing they are very rough and quick and dirty and um you deployed in such a way that like like one of the powers of chunking express for me might be that i'm a baby and not having it consummated in that rough way lets me imagine kind of what's happening this kind of beautiful yeah. romance stays at that um in the mood for love is the same way but there is something so powerful about the way he deploys like despite being this kind of like you know perfume commercial director like 
he deploys the actual kind of consummation of those relationships in ways that is just intentionally disquieting. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I mean, we talk, we've talked about it. We talk about it almost any time we watch a movie that heavily features sex because like, it's just something the, the bar for American cinema is like so in the ground. And like, if, if the sex scene, like, I feel like in so much of American cinema, if the sex scene is not being deployed to make the man look cool as fuck or have some kind of agenda behind it about like, well, here's like, let me tell you something about sex. Like it's, it just doesn't exist. Like those are kind of like the two, like obviously painting with a very broad brush here, but like in mainstream American cinema. um, So that it is that thing where like when it is deployed, you know, like in any way that is like, you know, I don't, I don't know that I would call like the masturbation sequence in this film, like realistic in any, in any sort of way, but like emotionally it is like, it is grim and it is like, Hey, a lot of times human sexuality is like dark and sad and like born from a place that is like maybe pretty, like pretty unhealthy for us. And like, we can talk about that. Like we can make a movie where that is true and it's like i think it's one of those reasons why kind of like what you said jj like his films do work on so many levels because so much of the so much of the non-sexual stuff is so sexy and so much of the sexual stuff is kind of like raw and at least emotionally like it feels emotionally accurate to real life in a way that it frequently doesn't in other directors work a lot of american directors at least mainstream directors i think don't I think maybe because of the cultural expectation of like, you know, the kind of the commercial, the Michael Bay, the sexy ladies and powerful men thing. Like, I think maybe just don't understand that. Like, JJ, you, I mean, because I was just thinking, oh, other sexy filmmakers. And I, the other one that popped in my head was Ang Lee. It's another Chinese mm-hmm. filmmaker. Yeah. Cause I'm thinking like it's, and it's a lot of the same thing where like Ang Lee's movies are sexy, not except maybe in the case of Lust Caution, which is a very weird movie, are sexy despite the sex scenes, if there are any. They are sexy because of just, like, the way people look at each other and the the presence of longing and, like, selling that, like, you know, that's where the lust happens is in the in the, in the the look, not in the, you know, not in the actual consummation of the act. And it's... Yeah. Yeah, it's the exact thing. It's like these movies, Fallen Angels, I think I find to be so haunting because maybe the only time we see any kind of visualized sex it's not a it's it's not a partnered thing it's you know it's it's just a soul it's a solo act it's a lot of was yeah it's a lot of people say i'm sorry it's just it's a lot of people saying no it's a lot of you know it's a lot of um uh, 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 oh, what's his name? It's a lot of uh, uh, ho walking up or Wong walking up uh, Blondie to the door and then just being like, no, no, we, nah. Yeah. Not happening, you know? Yeah. Totally. And um, as soon as you said the thing about American filmmakers, I was like, I need to find the exception. And the person who popped into my head, and maybe it's because he's always in my head, was Steven Soderbergh. Mm. But even thinking back to, I mean, the greatest American sex scene of the last 30 years is I think his sequence in out of sight where there actually isn't a sex scene. It cuts between the date before that kind of consummation happens and then cuts to their clothes are off. It's over or it's just beginning. Um, And 
thinking of that too, I another Wong, there is one more Wong I haven't seen, I realized, besides Ashes of Time. I've never seen Eros, his um, uh, film that he made with Steven Soderbergh and with Michelangelo Antonioni. So, although I've heard the Antonioni is truly dreadful, um, but I don't know. I don't know. I haven't seen it myself. So sorry to Antonioni if it is better than the reputation. But all three of those filmmakers are, I mean, Antonioni himself is like of the European art cinema masters. His movies are the ones that have that like that cool kind of lusty kind of look to them. Um but all of them are people who are, yeah, maybe sexier when they're not actually showing, showing the act happening. Um, and in Wong, it's very deliberate, at least. Yeah. And so I, maybe it's, I, he's making movies for America. Well, I, okay. So I, I never heard of that film, JJ. So I just Googled it. Um, and I don't, I did not spell things correctly. And so all of the, I, I just got a bunch of uh, news articles about from 2021 about how Wong Kar Wai was auctioning off unseen like unseen footage from In the Mood for Love as an NFT. Oh no, they that's, all do that's it. they all do it. So I mean, hey. financing movies with the blockchain. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I you know, make I do money. Believe, um, let me look this up to make sure I'm not lying. Um, yes, so Wong's section of that movie is called The Hand. Mm-hmm. And I do believe it is about an act that is committed with the hand. Interesting. An erotic act with Interesting. The hand. Um, so yeah. <laughs> it's on the Criterion channel. Okay, interesting, fantastic. You know, if Car Wise gotta sell some NFTs to make another movie, it's not. Yeah, what else? I is mean, he doing? it's even worse. There have been worse things in the world that have happened. It's not it is one of those things ever. where it's like, if it means we get another Wong Kar Wai, then fucking fine. Like, do it. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, no, I, it's, I will. It's, <laughs> it's maybe a, maybe the only case where the ends justify the means is. Um, what, well, Caroline? It's the thing that we've talked about multiple times with John Carpenter, where we're like, look, whether it's fucking Netflix or whoever, I don't care. Like, I just want somebody to collect enough money to lure that man out of retirement for one more go. It doesn't matter. I don't care if it's the, <laughs> the North Korean government's got to put up, you know. I think you're looking for a pair of scissors to cut the cords on his PlayStation. <laughs> That's very in order true, to yeah. get that done. Oh, yeah. He's got a, a virus in his PS5, yeah. Uh, we yeah, we, we shut talked down about the servers that. for Fallout 76. <laughs> Honestly. Well, and I mean, I don't know. If they're happy, that's fine. But the two, these two men have given us so much. And if they, but are, I'm not, <laughs> if they are truly happy, if they are truly happy, then like we can let sleeping dogs lie. But also, like, yeah. also, like, come on, like, just okay, come on. Um, we might have it this year again. It seems like I was, I was talking about this with a bunch of people on the Blinkies Discord yesterday. Um, but it's been unclear to me whether Wong is actually directing this new miniseries that's been in the ether for a while. It has apparently shot. Uh, it's going to be 24, 52 hour long episodes. Uh, and he has Lord. at least directed the pilot and he wrote and produced and was on set for the whole thing. So yeah. we might get something. This yeah, year. Although I will say if anyone who writes for the AV club is listening to this, this is not his first TV project. He comes from TV. Okay. Small little thing I want to <laughs> Did the AV Club run an article that says that yeah, this it's is his first, first TV project ever? I'm like, yeah, well, directing, sure, but um, yeah, no, that's where um, he comes from. If if anybody from the AV Club is listening to this, um, 
hi uh, <laughs> hey tell your friends i don't know tell your colleagues um but also it's not one it's not one girl his first film project guys come on you heard it here <laughs> do, first. Your, do your research um yeah no and i was i was seeing something about that the other day because i was watching there is a um there's a, a a fun little bonus that i don't know that, like I gleaned too much from, but there is a bonus in the world of Wong Kar Wai, uh, oh, which yeah. is it's I just like <laughs> yeah, like a bunch of directors and filmmakers and screenwriters like zoom, like do a little like a little webcam recording. I'm just like, hi Wong Kar Wai, I have a question for you, and it's this, and it's mostly just filmmakers being like, I love you, you're so talented, you're the best thing that's ever happened to cinema. Anyway, it's like, so how funny. do you write your films? And then it's like him directing, but like the the little title card is like. Like Wong Kar Wai was on the set of a new miniseries that he's producing, and um, in between takes, we uh, were able to sit down with him, and mm. and so yes, it seemed as if he was very heavily involved um, in in the uh, in the production. So fingers crossed, it at least feels like a Wong Kar Wai joint. Are these One like more young thing about filmmakers? Oh, Sorry, I'm just. Are these were these? They were like everyone. Young, there was like a Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh my God. One of, one of the best moments is Bradford Young, the cinematographer, pops up yeah. and he literally like three minutes of discussion about Wong. And I am like, get these two people who can no longer make movies, get them in a room together and let them make something. Because as much as I've missed Wong, I miss Bradford Young too. But yeah, it's like Sofia Coppola. A lot of it too is like Wong is on the set, he shot really beautifully he's got the sunglasses on of course mm -hmm. and he's of giving course. his you know kind of mysterious answers uh and then the rest are clearly like covid zoom kind ah. of records where ryan johnson in particular is like yeah. this is one of the most covid shot things i have ever seen in my life but yeah it's like ryan johnson sofia coppola um the founders of road art who are like in everything uh criterion does um chloe Zhao. it's nuts yeah. Yeah, I would be so I don't know why I'd be so happy and wh whatever the next uh, Knives Out is, if they just do do the Zoom joke again. Yeah. But Wong Kar Wai is one of the guys that'd be incredible, incredible joke. There's incredible. also like a funny thing in the description where I believe it says like Wong picked out the 10 directors and it's like, no, mm. these are the 10 people mm. that you reached out to. Oh, absolutely. He did not reach out to Rodart, who comments on every single yes. uh, Criterion Instagram post. God, uh, it's funny. Wow. Ah, Angels, what a flick, huh? Yeah, oh, I was I was just so gonna good. say, I feel like JJ, I mean, this is one of those films where it's like, I feel like we could go litter frame and talk about how like, you know, it's so much so much untapped in the hour we've been discussing. But um, do you have any final thoughts on Fallen Angels? Anything else that like is in your notes or anything that you just wanna get on mic before we wrap up? Because I'm sure there's a ton, but also there's so much. Yeah, I could do this forever. You don't. You don't want to turn this into like a three-hour podcast, like the one I work for often is. I mean, um, hey, no, I, I, I am. Do I am on occasion. Always, don't tempt us do. with a good time. Every but time I see, I have episode, to go to work today. <laughs> I just have to say, uh, and, and I, I know, I know that it, it it is probably very stressful for the for some of the people you work with. But how long some of those episodes get? Every time I see an episode that has that is two hours and thirty minutes or above, I literally put my fist. I'm just like, yes, oh. this is uh, this is this is the next three days of driving for me. This is perfect. That's how I got into it. I spent one summer working for an archive and was just uploading materials to the Internet Archive forever. And I mm. needed something long. And I was like, all right, here we go. And back then there were only two hours. And now it's. Yeah. Ooh, you get Alex Ooh. Ross Perry in the room. Uh Oh, nice. um, 
What I wanted to say is as like a hardcore auteurist who works for the auteurist podcast around right now, um, this was so clarifying to me about the evolution of Wong's style because it is both a zag from Chungking Express, but also a very deliberate B-side. And it has so much of that style. A lot of it is make the style darker or make it more extreme. But it made me appreciate Happy Together in a totally new way to see how even starkly different it is from um, this film and just like enters Wong into like, that's his real transition movie uh, to being the filmmaker who he is with In the Mood for Love. So picking up that new appreciation for how he evolved over time. And again, a filmmaker who I do feel like is often kind of you know, via Twitter screenshot kind of boiled down into this one certain kind of aesthetic is such a, a more complicated stylist than he is given credit for. It's one of those things that was really interesting about reading the Boardwell um, kind of section about him is how much it is like, despite, you know, Wong being all over the place, there are stylistic markers when I think at this point in his reputation, it's, of course, there's clear stylistic markers. He's Wong Kar Wai. That's all he is. Yeah. Um, but seeing here how varied those those can be was awesome. And beyond that, I mean, what's better than like late Friday night, putting on some trip hop, seeing some dudes get absolutely murked, Busta Rhymes, big heads. It's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, I had such such a wonderful time watching this movie. When and talking well, with you. Yes, I was just gonna say thank you so so much for coming on the show. You are obviously yeah. um we will we will be doing planning for next season sometime this summer. We'll absolutely drop you a line. Um love, love to be back. And honestly, I don't I don't I don't want to uh I don't want to put anything on anybody. Like I said to you, JJ, we ultimately always like it for for it to be our guest decision. Um if you wanted to talk Soderbergh, there was a Soderbergh film that we that we floated. And uh, now that you know that this is a nice, safe space that we're not going to we don't <laughs> for for a show with such a judgmental title as ours, um, <laughs> I do really think that we we like to make a, a concerted effort to be like, no, like we don't shame, like like what you like, do what you do. And even though our title is so judgmental, it really is about sharing things that we love. Um, so we'd love to have you on again. Um, would you like to tell uh, just like our listeners where to find you on the Internet? Of course, you can. Well, you can find uh, me in the end credits and sometimes throughout the episode of uh, the podcast Blink Check with Griffin and David. Uh, and then you can follow me on Twitter as long as Twitter is still around at JJ.biz, J-J-D-O-T-B-I-Z. That's me. Excellent. I mean, thank you so much, JJ. Uh, huge fans of your work, huge fans of your Twitter presence. Um and uh, it's it's been awesome having you on. So again, the door is the door is open anytime you'd like to come back on. Um, Corey, would you to. like to tell the fine folks listening where they can find us on the internet? I would love to. If you like what you hear, please be sure to like us and subscribe wherever you stream your podcasts. Leaving a review would also really help out the visibility of the show. Uh, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, all at Pod. A very special thank you to our patrons. If you'd like a shout out on the show and bonus content, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Pod. And our newest Patreon episode should hopefully be dropping within the next week or two, talking uh, everyone's most anticipated episode, The Last Jedi. This is so appropriate. We were talking about 
three pla- like three hour plus long episodes and Ryan Johnston. And you know what? It's gonna be a guess thing. what, baby. Unfortunately, <laughs> we backed ourselves into this corner. Uh, I can't wait to do movies we actually like. <laughs> Excuse you. I know you love Last Jedi. I love you Last, Last Jedi. Jedi. I like Last Jedi. I really, really do. I truly do. We're gonna it's do just, a podcast about how that's uh, crazy. <laughs> that film came out what seven years ago at this point, and yeah, the last the last yeah. seven years have been really, 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 really tough Bad for Star Wars. Really tough, yeah. to be someone right. who likes Last Jedi. It's true. Caroline, next week. Yes. What are we doing? So, Carson, we are doing a a very, very, very different film from this one. Though it is a film that centers crime. And it is a film that really that really showcases and focuses on the city where it takes place. One might even say the city is a bit of a character. I don't know. Uh, in its own right. Um, Carson, you have somehow never seen the uh, the Walter Matthau, Robert Shaw version of The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Yeah, I'm a big dumb idiot. I think that this podcast has proven that time and time again. You are not. You are not. That's, <laughs> that's so rude. Um, hey, Kirsten, that's my friend you're talking about, okay? Hey, uh, thanks. <laughs> uh, so we are going to be doing that film next week. So um, get ready. Oh, I'm 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 ready. That okay. Was very threat. Get Whoa. Ready. Oh I my mean, god. Hey, it is an intense film. It is okay. it is uh it is a, it can be a bit of a stressful watch, very exciting. Okay. Um so uh we are going to uh be covering that film next week and thank you guys all so much for listening and for tuning in and we'll t- uh catch you guys next week when we talk at the taking of Pelham 123. Thanks JJ. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.